ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. I've often been impressed as I've watched ants foraging for food. You've probably seen ants marching one after another like an organized column of a military marching band. If you pay close attention, you might see an equally organized return column with victorious ants bearing the spoils of their search. Next time, look even more closely and you'll probably notice some of the incoming and outgoing ants interacting with each other, stopping face to face with antennas swiveling and swirling as though the two ants are having an animated conversation of some kind. After a moment, the interaction stops and they each continue marching in their opposite direction counter columns. Yet there is even more going on under the hood, so to speak, than meets the careful eye of the observer. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson. And on today's ID the Future, I'm joined by engineer Eric Castle to discuss how the remarkable behavior of harvester ants points to purpose and design in nature. Castle is author of the recent book, Animal Algorithms, Evolution and the Mysterious Origin of Ingenious Instincts. He is an expert in navigation systems, including GPS, and has had a longtime interest in animal navigation. He has had more than four decades of experience in systems engineering related to aircraft navigation and safety, and has served as an engineering consultant for NASA and the Federal Aviation Administration. Castle earned bachelor's degrees in biology and electrical engineering and a master's in science and religion from Biola. Welcome, Eric. Good to be here, Eric. So, Eric, I know we've had you on the show several times to discuss your recent book. Today, I wanted to have you help us understand a new paper that came out on the foraging behavior of harvester ants, if you're game for that. Sure. So there's a recent study published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface regarding a feedback control principle common to several biological and engineered systems. First, Eric, just give us a little bit of background on the subject to this study and why it piqued your interest. Well, it piqued my interest for, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one uh, is because there was some material in, in my book dealing with ant behavior, particularly aspects of the social behavior in, in ant colonies and how those behaviors are regulated and designed. And then this particular paper also is interesting because the authors actually make a direct connection and comparison between the, the feedback control mechanisms in these ant behaviors that they studied and engineered man-made control systems. So both of those were very similar to the aspects of behavior that I had been studying previously. Right. And so in this particular study, what were the researchers looking at and what, what did they find? So more specifically, they were evaluating, uh, in this case, a particular aspect of ant behavior, in this case, uh, harvester ants, where the foraging behavior of the ants in the colony is is highly regulated. So we already know that there's a lot of aspects of behavior in, in insect colonies that are regulated and controlled by algorithms, as I described in my book. In this case, they did a, a, a much more detailed comparison of how this particular behavior is controlled through a feedback control system. And this system is directly analogous to some of the man-made engineered control systems that people are probably familiar with. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. So tell us what you mean by a feedback control system and maybe give us an example or two of something that people might be familiar with. So um, in terms of man-made systems, people are familiar with temperature regulation and the air conditioning and heating systems in their home where, where there's a feedback mechanism to, 
to regulate the temperature. In, the, in a similar way, in animals and organisms, there is a process of homeostasis where the body temperature of animals is regulated in a similar manner. And there's, there are actually a lot of other feedback control mechanisms that have been studied in biology that function on the same general principle. And did the researchers in this particular study, I think they had identified a particular name that they gave to the type of control system. What was the name that they gave to it and describe a little bit about what they meant by that? Yeah, in this case, they, they actually evaluated several different kinds of feedback mechanisms because there are a number of ways of implementing it. And in this case, what they determined was the, the particular implementation in the ants is what they call multiplicative increase, multiplicative decrease, or in other words, a MIMD feedback mechanism. And what that does, it's actually a combination of positive and negative control. So some feedback control mechanisms are based on negative control. Others are based on positive control, which in ingenious actually about this particular system is that it's a combination of both and it's been highly optimized to control, in this case, the foraging behavior of, of the ants. Yeah, give us an example of what you mean by positive feedback. What would that do? So when a system is designed to have positive feedback, the intent is to increase the output. So in other words, if, you, if you're trying to increase a particular parameter, or the magnitude of a parameter in the system, you use positive feedback. There is an example of that in, in biological systems. The blood clotting system actually uses a form of positive feedback where purpose is when uh, an organism is cut, an, an animal is cut and is losing blood, and the function of the blood clotting system is to, to try to stop the bleeding, it uh, initiates a mechanism to send clotting mechanisms to the location of the cut. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it actually increases the amount of uh, clotting uh, as time goes on to accelerate the process of, you know, preventing a, a, the additional blood from being uh, lost in the, in the organism. Sure, sure. And so in this case, I think the researchers were indicating that as the harvester ants go out and forage successfully and return to the nest, that the ants that go out after them know that they should follow that same path or that same direction. And so that's kind of a positive feedback. You have more and more ants going out to the same place. But as we know, with positive feedback systems in engineering, it can also lead to instability. You can get a kind of a runaway effect. So, so how does the harvester ant system set up to minimize this instability, this um, increase-decrease approach that they have? Right. So, so the, again, the way the system is designed is really clever because it combines a negative feedback element to it. So in the way that this is applied in the, in the case of the, of the uh, harvester ants, the idea of the positive feedback is that when there is plenty of food available to be harvested, you want more ants to go out and forage. So that's mm -hmm. the purpose of positive feedback. But on the other hand, when less food becomes available or some conditions change in the environment, you don't want a lot of ants to go out and forage because this is actually a very critical 
element of uh, the harvester ant behavior because the harvester ants live generally in desert-like conditions. So you don't want a lot of ants going out from the nest and not being able to find food because they're not going to survive very long in, in the harsh conditions in the desert. So the negative feedback when ants are coming back to the nest and not being able to find food, what happens then is it results in a decrease in the number of ants that go out and forage. Mm-hmm. So the combination of the positive and the negative then really tightly modulates the, the foraging behavior. Right. Yeah, this is really interesting. So e- even though, you know, sitting here at the nest, I can't tell whether there's food out there and where it is. With this control system, I'm able to pretty quickly as a, um, you know, as a group of ants, as an, is, what do we call a group of ants together? <laughs> the colony. The colony. There you go. Yeah. The, the colony as a colony, we're able to pretty quickly determine whether or not it makes sense to go out and spend a lot of time and resources and effort, you know, and risk in foraging. Right. And if it is worthwhile, then we quickly send out a bunch. If it's not worthwhile, then we, we kind of scale back. So that's a pretty amazing system. Now talk us through just so the listeners can picture this a little bit. When the ants go out to forage initially, they're kind of doing what a random walk until they find something. And then there's a time frame I think related to this uh, control system, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, ants, when they go out to forage, it basically is a random walk. Uh, They don't inherently know where to forage because in, in the environments that they live, Food could be in any location, mm-hmm. and it, it varies over time. So it's it's basically a risk-reward kind of phenomenon that, that they're going out to forage. They don't know where to forage exactly. So that's why you want to optimize the number of ants that are foraging, because if, if the food availability is low, then they're not going to be successful. But on the other hand, if there is a lot of food available, then you do want to maximize the number of ants that are, that are foraging at that time. So that that's that's the way the mechanism works, and why it's why it's purposeful in the design of it to optimize the foraging of food and the availability of food, and of course that, that benefits the entire ant colony. Right, right, yeah. So so help us just a little bit more here. So I, say I've got two ants. Let's make this simple for for everybody. Let's say we got two ants that go out a random walk. One of them's out for 10 minutes, is successful and comes back. Another one's out for a half hour and comes back. What is tested? How did they know which one was successful and which one wasn't? Yeah, so there's a really unique mechanism that ants use to do this because it's not immediately obvious how, how an ants would even know when ants have been successful or unsuccessful in foraging. So the mechanism is based on molecules that they call uh, it's a cuticular hydrocarbon, which is present on the antenna of the ants. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when the ant goes out foraging, there's uh, a physical change that takes place in the in these in this molecule. And the change that takes place depends upon how long the ant has been out foraging from the nest. So, in other words, if it's been five minutes or if it's been a half an hour, there is actually a physical change in the hydrocarbons. And then when they return to the nest, the the incoming ants interact with the outgoing ants and they're at their antennae and the outgoing ants 
detect these hydrocarbons, and that then it tells that ant, not literally, obviously, but there's a mechanism that says, oh, this ant has been out foraging for five minutes or, or half an hour or, you know, relative scale and time, obviously. Right, right. That mechanism then is used in an internal algorithm in these ants to say, well, I should go out and forage more because the ants are coming back quickly and they're successful, or in the opposite case, the foraging ants are unsuccessful. They've been out very a very long time, which means I should not go out and forage. Mm-hmm. And and is it just based on how long they've been out, or is it let's say the one with five minutes comes back with food and the one with thirty minutes comes back with food? Are the ants going to say, "Hey, the five minute guy was was successful in five minutes. We'll go his path," or is it more just a time based? Or do we know? My understanding of it is that it's strictly the time element. In mm-hmm. other words, in a lot of these behaviors in the social insects in particular, there's kind of a, a voting mechanism, if you okay, will. Yep, so yep. you have a large number of ants in these colonies. They're, you know, thousands or in many cases more than that ants. So that in some cases you may have an ant coming back that's been foraging for a few minutes and others for a longer period of time. But when you look at the total number there's a, you know, basically it was an averaging process that goes on okay. where when you, when you look at the, you have a hundred ants and some of them were maybe only a few minutes, but the majority of them were more like a half an hour. Well, that becomes basically a voting mechanism for the outgoing ants. And then they base their decisions on that. Okay. Yeah. So this, this is not a successful circumstance that we're in right now because it's taking on average, you know, a long time to get back with food as opposed to a situation where on average people are coming back sooner. Yep. Yep. Okay. Right. Very interesting. So, you know, in addition to the control system, I I don't, I don't know if this was in the paper at all, but when you watch ants sort of marching in these uh, columns and you can even disrupt the column a little bit with your finger or something, in addition to this time-based control, the ants are also following a successful path based on uh, some sensory input, right? From the other ants that is left behind. Yeah. That's one of the other mechanisms that ants use in foraging is that uh, when they, when they leave the nest and they're out, foraging, they leave a, a trail, pheromones that are left on the trail and subsequent ants that use that trail detect those pheromones and can follow the trail. And again, this, this is another mechanism that is sort of um, a voting mechanism, if you will. So in other words, the more ants use a particular trail, the more pheromones The stronger are. it gets. Yep. Okay. That this makes sense. The other ants. So Eric, as we look at this overall uh, situation, we've got a in this MIMD control system with the positive feedback moderated by the negative feedback. We've got an algorithm and this voting situation that you've looked at. We've got these sensors to be able to detect, I think you called it the cuticular hydrocarbons on the antenna. As you look at all this together from a sort of a step back perspective, engineering perspective, what's your overall impression about these harvester ants and what they're doing? Well, I think there's a lot of indication that this whole behavior is highly engineered. And there's, there's a number of aspects of it that, that would um, support that notion. Prior to the particular paper that we're talking about, that was published relatively recently, several years prior to that, there had been other work on this same phenomenon. And in particular, there was a paper published by several engineers at Stanford University. And they looked at this from an engineering perspective 
And what they did was they developed an algorithmic model that was intended to mimic the behavior of the ants. And they were quite successful in, in being able to do that. They compared the, the performance of the model with, with the performance of the ants, and they got a, a very uh, highly correlated result. The other aspect of that that they analyzed in their paper was the actual uh, efficiency of this behavior. And it shows that this particular behavior, the way it's engineered, is, is extremely efficient in controlling the ant behavior and, you know, specifically in, in terms of the foraging and how it helps to optimize the performance of the whole colony of obtaining food, et cetera. So between the, uh, the algorithmic aspect of this, the physical uh, mechanisms that are involved that we talked about, there's a lot of engineering that went, has gone into developing this entire behavior. So it's, it's, again, it's a lot of evidence that in particular social insects, in this case the ants, uh, there's a, not, a lot of aspects that are very um, highly designed uh, from an engineering perspective. Yeah, I think that was that the Prabhakar paper you're referring to? Yes. Yeah, and I think it's just a real eye-opener, I think, for all of us as we look at these and, and these researchers have looked at this over the last many years. You know, sometimes we're just a little bit naive, Eric, and we think, oh, you know, these these small creatures aren't very smart and they're just going out and, and wandering around aimlessly, <laughs> but there's actually a lot going on here. It's a pretty impressive system. So the common story, of course, Eric, would be that all of these capabilities, the harvester ants somehow uh, evolved by chance. What's your assessment of the likely origin of these capabilities? Do you think that these are the kinds of things that could be reasonably explained through unguided evolutionary processes, or do you feel that design is a more reasonable explanation? Yeah, so I think that these, these examples of uh, behaviors are really difficult to explain from an evolutionary perspective. They're complex. As we discussed, there's a number of different aspects to it. The algorithm itself is, is complex. It has mathematical aspects to it. The physical mechanisms are also engineered in different ways. So as I discussed in my book, a lot of these behaviors of the, the social insects in particular, there's a, a lot of algorithmic aspects to the behaviors. In other words, there's controls that are designed. And the thing, the thing that's most astonishing about this in terms of uh, animals like in, uh, insects, and in this case ants, is that these behaviors do not have a central control mechanism in, in terms of the, the colony. These are all behaviors that the individual animals, ants, perform. So that means that each ant in its brain, presumably, and in, in, in some sort of a, um, a mechanism that's designed into the brain, is actually implementing these algorithms. And there's a lot of other aspects to that that I, I kind of touched on in the book as well, but how that's even possible in the first place. But there's so many different elements of these behaviors that are strong indications of design, and but conversely are really hard to explain from a, a mechanism of you know, random mutations and selecting incremental changes over a long period of time. In other words, 
how do these behaviors come about where they're, they're so complex and involve a lot of different uh, aspects, but could have happened, you know, a piecemeal, one mutation at a time, uh, et cetera. So I think the design uh, hypothesis is, is a much more evidence for that than an evolutionary mechanism. That definitely makes a lot of sense. And it occurs to me as, as you're describing these systems that there's still some more stuff we haven't even talked about. So, for example, you've got these cuticular hydrocarbons on the antenna that um, vary depending on how long the ants have been out. That's great. But then you've also got to have the ability for the outgoing ants to sense that in some way. There has to be a sensor mechanism, which is then tied into these algorithms. So it all has to work together. You can't just have the cuticular hydrocarbons with no sensor and no algorithm and, and expect anything to work. It's all got to be together. So Right. And that's, that's where the looking at this from an engineering perspective is really useful because as engineers, we're, we're very familiar with how to design systems that are, that are complex and how you have to integrate a number of different elements, both physical and in terms of some algorithmic uh, aspect, for example. All of that has to be integrated and, and work as an, as an entire system. And that's, that's where the evidence for engineering is even more obvious when you look at it from that point of view. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eric, thanks so much for being with us today to help talk us through this new paper. I, it seems like the more that we study and reverse engineer what's going on in biology, the more we can see um, a master engineer at work in living systems. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about the remarkable design found in ingenious animal instincts and behaviors, check out Eric Castle's book, Animal Algorithms, Evolution and the Mysterious Origin of Ingenious Instincts. You can also learn more by checking out our other episodes of ID the Future, and we invite you to consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.